0: You're listening to 92Y Talks. In an exclusive New York appearance, Nobel laureate Toni Morrison reads from and discusses her new novel, God Help the Child, a searing tale about the way childhood trauma shapes and misshapes the life of an adult. She is introduced by Sherlane McRae, the first lady of New York City, and interviewed by Farrah Jasmine Griffin. The event was recorded on April 27th, 2015 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y.
1: Thank you, thank you. What a warm welcome. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Bernard, and thank you to everyone who made this evening possible because it is such a treat for me to be here with with all of you and with Toni Morrison. I mean, does it get better than this? (laughs) I am so savoring the moment. After all, you know, Toni has been such a profound influence in my life. I was actually a sophomore in high school when Toni Morrison published her debut novel, The Bluest Eye. That was in 1970. And the book had special significance for me because I lived in an all-white community. We were actually the second black family to move there. And by all accounts, I was not cute. (laughs) My world was all white by day, it was integrated in the afternoons, and black by night and on weekends. Emotionally speaking, it was confusing, often overwhelming. Remember, this is way before they talked about childhood trauma. (laughs) Reading was my number one therapeutic escape. Up until then, most of the characters that I had encountered in fiction, characters of all colors and ethnicities, were the creation of authors who did not look like me. I read some extraordinary books. After all, there was some great writings. But I was riveted by Pecola Breedlove, the main character in The Bluest Eye. Morrison described her as a little black girl who wanted to rise up out of the pit of her blackness and see the world with blue eyes. Pecola was me. And she was not me. But there was enough there to make my heart pound, and Toni Morrison touched all my sensitive parts with her words. She presented such a very different way of looking at the world. My reading of The Bluest Eye was also the beginning of what I like to call The Great Haunting. Now, I'm not into scary movies and all that, but I never sleep too well after reading one of Toni's books. (laughs) (laughs) I stayed up way too late last night reading God Help the Child, and I got to page 140. And let me tell you, her characters are really sticky. I can't let them go. So many questions are raised. Well, let's say they hover. I'll get a little sip of night rest, and between breaths I'm wondering about the main character bride, and bride's mother, and her peculiar thoughts about how we hold on to our dignity. Indeed, how do we hold on to our dignity? I first met Tony when I was a student at Wellesley College, which is a women's college. Uh, I don't think Tony would remember this. I wouldn't expect her to. I was part of a group of students that brought her and James Baldwin to campus for a lecture. <laughs> And I'm going to be honest, I was dumbstruck, I was totally tongue-tied in their presence. I mean, Toni Morrison and James Baldwin, I was what, 20 years old? Not even. I know I managed to say a few words to them, but I I couldn't get over how real they were. (laughs) The fact that they actually came to our campus. Now, I know, we paid them, so of course they came. But But as a young woman who once dreamed of working in a library, just so I could have access to books, to all the books that I wanted to read, I had never fathomed that I might have the opportunity to meet an author. And at that time of my life, I was learning a whole new vocabulary for what I thought was the weird space I inhabited on the earth trying to figure out how how I could navigate society with all my identities, class, ethnicity, color, gender, sexual orientation, student, daughter, friend, lover. And by then, I had read Sula. (laughs) I love a well-read audience. (laughs) So... Sula, as you know, is about so many things. Self-identity, doing what is expected of you, and having the ability to cry. And, and I am still tasting those last two lines over and over and over again. Do you know those lines? When Nell realizes that she isn't really missing her husband, Jude. Oh, Lord, Sula, Nell cried. Girl, 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 girl. It was a fine cry, loud and long, loud and long, but it had no bottom and it had no top, just circles and circles of sorrow. (laughs) For me, that book, Sula, pierced through some conventional ways of thinking about relationships, And, and Tony's very presence just spoke to me of possibilities. Now, I've recently had the pleasure of getting to know Toni Morrison a little better, and I am as deeply moved by the person as I am by, as I am by her work. She's everything you might expect, funny, generous, scary smart, and, and deeply interested in the people around her. She's also very firm about correspondence. Let's just say she's not a big fan of email or social media. If you want to write to her, you have to write to her with pen and paper. Yeah. I I applaud that. I think that's a very reasonable request coming from Toni Morrison. If everyone was half as careful with their words as she is, what a better world it would be. On the second day of January, my 20-year-old daughter Kiara and I visited Tony in in her home. I can't think of a better way to have started the new year. The entire afternoon was such a treat. Three generations of women sitting around a kitchen table talking over some warm peach apple pie. (laughs) And there was so much to talk about. Especially when she's got friendships like, she had friendships with people like Gail Jones, Angela Davis, Tony Cade Mambara, people she's worked with, all the people she's been close to. We know her as a wonderful storyteller, writer and editor, but she does some fierce mentoring of so many of our young sons and daughters. And I could not have been happier when she encouraged Chiara de Blasio to write and send her something. It should come as no surprise that Tony is deeply invested in the next generation. Over the decades, as the world slowly came to appreciate her genius, all of the accolades she has received have done nothing to dull the power of her words. Bill and I invited her to participate in a roundtable discussion at Gracie Mansion about the progressive agenda. Now, you know, I want you to know that Bill refers to her as the queen. <laughs> And we invited her precisely because her voice is so strong and consistent, reminding us of our tortured history, reminding us of where we come from, reminding us that the poor must have a seat at the table that shapes the future. Truly great writers prod and provoke our thinking. And that's what Tony does. Beginning with the bluest eye, through to God help the child, She has forced America to examine the consequences of our most terrible impulses through the eyes of those who are most vulnerable, our children. The reading is not always easy. It never is with Toni Morrison. But I know you can't possibly get to beauty and joy without first walking through those first thought-provoking steps. I just want to thank Tony. You are she is one of America's greatest treasures, and I thank her for her courage and her unrelent, unrelenting passion for the word. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Miss McCray. And now please
3: welcome Tony Morrison and Farrar Jasmine Griffin.
0: Lovely, lovely. (laughs) Good evening, everyone. I want first to thank everyone at the 92nd Street Y for having us here, for bringing us all together on the occasion of the publication of Ms. Morrison's new novel, God Help the Child. Um, I want to thank all of you for coming out and joining us. And most importantly, I want to thank you, Ms. Morrison, for sharing this time with us, for giving us yet another beautiful and compelling book. And I would ask, would you get us started with a reading from that novel before we start our conversation? I just happened to
3: have. (laughs) Now if I pause, in the reading, it's not because I don't know what's going on. (laughs) It's that I think I probably need and don't have my glasses. (laughs) At any rate, I'm just going to read a couple of pages in the voice and tell the story of a young girl who is called Rain because that's where the people who are taking care of her found her, sitting on the steps, shivering in the rain. And this is her voice, she's gone, my black lady. That time I saw her stuck in the car, her eyes scared me at first. Silky, my cat, has eyes like that. But it wasn't long before I began to like her a lot. She's so pretty. Sometimes I used to just look at her when she was sleeping. Today her car came back with a busted door of another color. Before she left, she gave me a shaving brush. Steve has a beard and doesn't want one, so I use it to brush my cat's fur. I feel sad now she's gone. I don't know who I can talk to. Evelyn is real good to me and so is Steve, but they frown or look away if I say stuff about how it was in my mother's house or if I start to tell them how smart I was when I was thrown out. Anyway, I don't want to kill them like I used to when I first got here. But then I wanted to kill everybody until they brought me a kitten. She's a cat now and I tell her everything. My black lady listens to me tell how it was. Steve won't let me talk about it, neither will Evelyn. They think I can read, but I can't. Well, maybe a little signs and stuff. Evelyn's trying to teach me, she calls it Homeschooling. I call it home drooling <laughs> and home fooling. We're a fake family. Okay, but fake. Evelyn is a good substitute mother, but I'd rather have a sister like my black lady. I don't have a di- daddy. I mean, I don't know who he is because he didn't live in my mother's house but Steve is always here unless he's doing some day work somewhere. My black lady is nice, but tough, too. When we started walking back home, after I told her everything about my life, before Evelyn and Steve, a truck with big boys in it passed us. One of them hollered, Hey, Rain, who's your mammy? My black lady didn't turn around, but I stuck out my tongue and thumbed my nose at him. One of them was Regis, a boy I know, because he comes to our house sometimes with his father to give us firewood or baskets of corn. The driver, an older boy, turned the truck around so they could come after us. Regis pointed a shotgun just like Steve's at us. My black lady saw him and threw her arm in front of my face. The bird shot messed up her hand and arm. We fell, both of us, her on top of me. I saw Regis duck down as the truck gunned its engine and shot off. What could I do but help her up and hold on to her bloody arm as we hurried back to her house as fast as her ankle would let her? Steve picked the tiny pellets out of her hand and arm, saying he was gonna warn Regis' father. Evelyn washed the blood off my black lady's skin and poured iodine all over her hand. My black lady made a hurt face, but she didn't cry. My heart was beating fast because nobody had done that before. I mean, Steve and Evelyn took me in and all, but nobody put their own self in danger to save me, save my life. But that's what my black lady did, without even thinking about it. She's gone now. But who knows, maybe I'll see her again sometime. I miss my black lady.
0: Thank you. Um, that's a wonderful place to start. It, it falls in the middle of the novel, but so much of um, What I've been thinking about this as I read it is encapsulated there. I think for those of us who have read a lot of your work, this novel resonates with much that's come before. Uh, Rain reminds me of Amy Denver a little bit (laughs) in Beloved. And yet it also departs from much of that work. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways that you see yourself, or if you see yourself in this novel, commenting on your other work and what you see yourself wanting to do differently here? I don't really
3: connect each of bits, pieces, threads with previous novels, which is not to say that certain themes in the previous novels don't surface in subsequent ones. But I write the novels over years, and then I try to promote them, and then I forget about them. (laughs) (laughs) And I never read them over, except on circumstances like this. Although I have to admit, about two months ago, I uh, was signing a copy of Beloved, and uh, I started reading (laughs) it, and I kept turning the pages, turning the pages. I was absolutely, well, I was very deeply impressed. (laughs) pretty good I thought it was pretty good but the subsequent ones, you know, structure is always where the theme is for me even more than some of the characters but I'm moving away from your question I don't, they're all brand new for me brand new territory brand new ways of thinking this book, God Help the Child I started before I uh, wrote, completed Home. Uh, It was sort of there-ish. But the period was so contemporary, and I'm not known for writing books about now. Uh, The closest I came was Tar Baby, which was in the 80s or something. But the current landscape was very, very, can I say, slippery to me. I didn't really understand or have a hook on, you know, 2007. So I waited. And then I began to realize that some of the earlier themes were still bubbling up and surfacing now. I just needed a new language, uh, a new collection of people in order to express it. You may have noticed, some of you who have read several of my books, that I shy away from what we used to call the omnipotent author. I'm always, A, trying to get the reader to work with me on this and just, you know, open up a little door here so they could step in and do the rest of the work. And then I began to shift voices, or not just shift them, but have a sequence. Or in some instances, where I have a voice and nobody knows who that is. Mm -hmm. You know, in love, for example.
2: Right,
3: right. Although she does hint a little bit at what her real name is, but just having her someplace else, but knowing everything, or can rely on everything. So, that, It's comfortable to me because I don't feel the, you know, that awful hammer that omnipotence puts, or that an author can hold in the hand. This is what it is. This is what it is. This is what. So here I can have a collection or group of people who don't even know each other contribute to the main story and their aspect in it and of it. So, and then once I understood what I thought was probably a major theme in this late or mid 19, uh, 2000s, um, then I knew how to proceed and I knew who was in it and what their relationship with each other was in order to go through the full story of childhood trauma and how it works its way through. Yes or no?
0: Well, there are uh, many, many children, many adults in the novel who were abused or experienced some traumatic s- something in their childhoods. And Rain certainly felt some of that. We get that with Rain there. One of the things that you said when you were reading that is her, this refrain of My Black Lady. My Black Lady, and it is something that is very different, I feel, about this novel, is that for Rain, that really is simply a description of what Bride looks like. It's of her color. It's not invested with all these other meanings. Um, she doesn't seem to have inherited all these meanings, and that seems different here. Yeah, I... Um... She's a
3: child. she's her skin is bone white. Her eyes are emerald green. She's been living with a prostitute mother who has prostituted her for money. and when they have some difficulties, she just throws her out of the house and she's picked up by some very nice people of an, of an older generation and taken in. So she has experienced the world entirely differently. Not, you know, who's black, who's white, who's Chinese. Who's but for her, it's who, how can I be safe? Where do I hide? Who are the people who will befriend me? And she falls in love with Brian, who is, you know, there's a the difference between being a ten-year-old and a twenty-three-year-old, and Aesthetically, first, she just stares at her, because she is beautiful, and it doesn't make any difference about the depth or the breadth uh, of her personality or her skin. She can talk to her, and you're right in that it's not about, it's a description of who this woman is to her, not a definition of race positive or negative. It's a neutral.
0: Was that something that you felt about the contem- setting it in the contemporary moment? Did setting it in the contemporary moment give you more room to explore that distinction between race and color and racism?
3: In a way, I have uh, you know, been teaching for a long, long time. And there are lots of differences over the generations. Uh... When I first started teaching in New Jersey, at Princeton, every student I knew, particularly the men, were all going to Wall Street. And then there was another group. Anyway, the latter four or five years of my actually being on campus, there was an entirely different attitude. A, there were lots of mixed race, as they call them, students. B, the younger people were just not interested in racism as it has been known and understood, carried out. And they sort of dropped their lids, you know, and <laughs> anybody began to talk about it in a personal way. Not necessarily the history of, I suppose, if you teach a course in African American history, they would be alert to that. But in their personal relationships, it didn't matter. So. I don't, you know, I've been away from there for, I don't know, five years now, so maybe they all came back and decided they all wanted to be like they were in the 50s. I don't know. But, but that feeling of, um, you know, in, in a certain area in, of violence, there's no question about race matters. Um, but on the other hand, there's another part of the thought in the society in the country in which it really doesn't. So how do you get those two things together? I have all the solutions
0: in case you're interested. <laughs> <laughs> I would be remiss to not note that when you said race matters that Dr. Cornel West is in the audience with us tonight. <laughs> And that phrase resonates with his title yes. for us, right? right. Um, race does matter, well, racism still matters in this book, but race is questioned. I mean, it's sort of, I feel like you hold it up and allow us to see it from different angles and sort of question it. Um, mm-hmm. And you certainly make a distinction between racism and color. Uh, bride, as you said, I have to be self-indulgent though, and say this, that I know it doesn't matter, I know it's superficial, and beauty is superficial, and all of that stuff, but I, for one, was so grateful for a character, a jet black woman character who is described as gorgeous and stunning, and because I don't think I've ever seen that. I don't think I've ever, I've never seen it. And then you do it only to undermine my investment in it and my need. My need to have that. So, you know, I thought, why is she doing this? Um, why do you do that? Why do you give it to us Take and then back. snatch it back?
3: Well, um, th- this is a connection, as you may have already noticed, between the devastation of the first book I wrote, The right. Bullist Die*, in which racism and her uh, swallowing up the tale of racism is destructive and destroys her. Um and God help the child, the mother is unhappy about that. But she turns the whole black, Sudanese black, as her mother called. I was looking at some Sudanese last night on television. And I said, that's correct. <laughs> I mean it's you know, really deeply, almost navy blue black. And they have these exquisite faces. I mean, unbelievably. They say the Ethiopians are the most beautiful people in the world, but the Sudanese give them a run. <laughs> but anyway. Uh, where was I? Oh. So. <laughs> but the point being that uh, neither one will help you. I mean, it's sort of nice. I'd rather be uh, not ugly, (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) just to get through the street, you know. (laughs) But it's more important to be a three-dimensional person. It's much more important, Mm -hmm. and one of the ways you get to be a whole person is you stop thinking about your little self? Yeah. <laughs> Am I pretty? Am I not pretty? Oh, this, eh, eh. and then start doing something serious for somebody else. And when she, <laughs> I got a fan group out there, but <laughs> but when the two of them, both the man, the lover, and the loved, have been seriously damaged. Or felt damaged about something that happened to them, out of their control. And their regret is, not, is more than regret. It's deep. It's eating them. It's poisoned them. And almost everything they do is a result of that. And then something happens where they have to seriously look after, care for somebody else they both love. And the time they spend doing that is part of the ritual, which will get them to a place where they can stop. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, but, you know, that's not all that you are. Somebody your mother didn't like, somebody that hurt your member of your family and your family dissed you, that doesn't contribute to your escape from that chain that you... um, hang around your own neck Mm -hmm. so I just wanted that to happen even when it was the glorious glorious beauty of a glorious black woman it ain't enough
0: (laughs) so it's not only beauty that's not enough here I mean I think that a character who feels very new to me um, I'm not giving away the novel like some book reviewers do, <laughs> um, but a character who feels new in your corpus is the male character who is Bride's love interest. It's a beautiful love story. I mean, I, I, I said to Tony backstage that um, it's sort of like Ajax and Sula, that beauty in the beginning, but it's, you know, sure. whatever. But, um, but it's not only beauty that's not enough, Booker is an intellectual. He's, he, I mean, it's, it's one of the best portrayals I've ever seen of the intellectual life and, and the desire for a life of the mind. And he's got that, he's brilliant, he reads, he's an aspiring jazz musician. And that's not enough either, though.
3: Well, he doesn't really surface and triumph in any of those areas. There are all these essays he was gonna write in this great book, very important. He has a title and everything. Uh, the Vault in the Church is the title of the book. The Vault in the Church. The Vault in the Church. <laughs> He's an economist, and he knows most of it is all about money. And, but this other thing haunts him. And he is finally told, why are you working your dead brother to death? why are you making him run your life?" He says, you don't run my life. Oh yes, he says, you uh, made him, put him on your shoulders, and made him the something in your heart and something in your brain. I don't remember the adjectives, I changed them too much. But anyway. (laughs) And it was true. Everything depended on his uh, relationship, his horror, his rage at anybody who would seduce a child as his brother had been. So that consumes his every, it's his judgment. And it was only after, it can only be after he lets his dead brother go, you know, his Queen tells him, he might be tired, you know, maybe he wants to rest. No, he's got to do your stuff. Mm-hmm. So, But that mm-hmm. is what I was trying to say, not to diminish the pain of a trauma at all, and not to say one shouldn't forget, you just not walk on and be happy, but know how, where to place it, how to place it, and how to move on.
0: Yeah. And part of moving on is, as you said, caring for other people. Outside of the novel lately, outside of this novel, um, you've given a number of talks. You gave a wonderful lecture at the Harvard Divinity School about two years ago. You gave another lecture at um, UC Santa Cruz around the concept of the good, in, in particularly in literature. Uh, and I think I see you working through some ways of representing the good here. But what made you interested in that as a idea, as a concept, good, and how do you define good? I,
3: uh, for years, I've been just bored, bored, bored (laughs) (laughs) with evil. It's just not interesting. You can always, yeah, okay. Blood, guts, whatever. But there's no, you know, I think I said in that lecture that uh, evil wears a top hat and it has uh, tap shoes and a cape and it's on stage and it's hollering and goodness is always backstage, sort of waving but it takes up all the energy because it is nothing. It's got to have a costume. Hmm. It's got to be loud. It's got to be bloody. Are you going to do a double take or not? Will you do a double take if there's blood running? But for me, you know, I just want to fall asleep. But what is interesting to me, really interesting, and I can't define it, it's because it's interesting. I can't say exactly what it is, but it's the most interesting, I would say, word, concept, idea. And I don't mean just in a religious sense. You know, for Americans, we think goodness is weak. Weak. Um, and, uh, you know, even in this recent sort of spate of. Uh, police people shooting young men and saying they did it. I mean, they know it's not true, but they say they did it because they thought their life was in danger. And when you think of shooting somebody in the back because you're scared, think about that. They're running that way, away from you, because they're scared, and you shoot them because you're afraid for your life, that is the most cowardly, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: The, the truly weak, and a coward with a gun is the most dangerous thing in the world. But it's sort of embarrassing why Americans think they have to have, well, I know, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into the psychology of it all, but uh, what is this area that we don't think about, and why have we trivialized um, war, 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 good ending, close the book, close the movie, somebody saved, you know, but the whole 90% of it is this other stuff. Do they really think they can hold my, listen, one small thing and then I'll shut up. Don't shut I... <laughs> up. <Yeah. laughs> I did a introduction, I was asked to do an introduction and I agreed to do it for a collection of works by Primo Levi and I had read some of his things but not everything. And they're doing, like, everything. So it's really, and I was really struck, not only for the obvious, you know, the brilliant writing and sensitivity and so on, but he's in one of those camps. And what he's interested in is how the people, the prisoners, uh, not just survive, but how human they are. No matter what the gesture. He is not interested in the Nazi guards. If they do something, he'll mention it, but he is not in doesn't have any inquiry. They're just they could be, you know, automatons. He talks about language that way. I think some of you have read these things when he's walking, starving and thirsty along. A little tiny path with other prisoners, and there's a. It's cold, and he takes an icicle off of the roof. I mean the eave to suck on, and a Nazi guard comes and takes it away, and he says, "What'd you do that for? Why?" "Vor," and the guard said, "There isn't a why here." Boom, language is over. I mean, you know, communications in that sense. So his thrust is always these, well, they're small, but they're profound gestures. Not even of compassion, just the instinct to be human under those circumstances. Which is not to say there weren't fights and so on, and so on but he mentions those and he glorifies them without, you know, waving a flag. And it's overwhelming. Instead of, oh my God, look at Goebbels or, you know, some other... He's looking at this other thing. It's the most extraordinary experience I think I've had in reading Holocaust, so-called Holocaust literature Is is some of the things he does. And he's not an idiot because he's written some, I mean, he's not... A, f- a fool who's only looking for good things. It's not that. Because he writes some really devastating poetry about that situation. But anyway, I mention that because it's one of the, it's not to say that there aren't other texts, particularly historical ones like that. But this was you know, some time ago, but it still hit me that with very few People writing, is there ever this amazement that I feel when something is preternaturally good without waving a little flag? Do you remember when um, somebody went into an Amish school and shot up all, you know, got the teachers out and shot up all the little girls and the Amish people? went to the shooter's wife and children and asked her, if she needed anything. And they buried their children and rebuilt the school. But what was interesting to me was there had been another school shooting about a month before. What was interesting to me is that the story became, not the death of those girls, the media was there and they were stunned that the Amish didn't talk about it. They said, God is the judge. They had nothing else to say, so it was that silence, and their unwillingness to dwell on what they perceived as evil. They did another thing, and over and over again, there was this constant theme in the press that they wouldn't go on television. They're not going on. A radio, not doing any of that. They were just taking care of business, hmm. When their job. That struck me. And I think that's the way I began some of those articles I was trying to write on. I called it altruism. And I was very disappointed in my research in altruism because, I don't know, it was all about bugs and... <laughs> Squirrels do this so that the, which is all right. I can understand, you know, protecting the, you know, swarm. (laughs) By one thing. But the other thing was that in my looking up these books on altruism and goodness, two of them suggested that altruism was a kind of a mental disorder that people were narcissistic, and they were just, you know. Anyway. It's still worthy. It's a worthy subject. It's a worthy subject.
0: When (laughs) you were talking about what you saw in the Primo Levi, I was thinking I see that in your work. I mean, there's a moment in Beloved where um, Setha, while she's still enslaved, it stands out to me, and she's doing something like, she's sweeping, and she's tied a little piece of juniper or something to the oh, to going back into the so that while she's sweeping back and forth, she gets that scent. <laughs> and I just remember that standing out to me about the humanity of people in the worst conditions who still want this sensual experience. I and mean, it, it felt like a gift to your readers. And it f- feels similar to what you're describing. So I think mm. we see that in your work too. Um, <laughs> I remember having, uh, this is something that I'll share, a conversation with you after the um, George Zimmerman. I'm going there because you went there. I wasn't going to go there, but you went there. So, (laughs) um, after the George Zimmerman verdict, and, um, you know, I remember being despondent and saying to you that I could not write, that I had something due and I could not write. Um, that I was paralyzed, I might not have used those words, and you said to me, you have to write, you have to do your work, because that is the job of evil, to keep us from doing our work. <laughs> and then later on, you, you, you know, we had a conversation where you said you had a similar conversation with Peter Sellers, and so can you talk a little bit about that? We're, we're we're in difficult times right now. These are, these are difficult times. I mean, also, there's always a hopefulness also, but they're difficult. What do you mean when you say that it's the job of evil to keep you from doing your work? We have to keep doing the work through the dark times.
3: An artist, certainly, uh, and other people as well in all different walks, all different kinds of professions, labor, relationships. What happened to me was I was like, ugh. I mean, little did I know how it would turn out later, but at the time, I thought, this is impossible. This election, (laughs) you can guess which one it was. (laughs) And I thought, ugh. And, okay, so I thought, oh, this is terrible. But what I knew was that I was not going down you know i get up early in the morning to write because i'm very smart early in the morning right now it's about over <laughs> but i couldn't and so peter called me up it was christmas and he usually says hi how you doing so this time he called me up and he said how are you doing i said uh, i don't know peter i said i feel so tired i was writing and i can't write And I was talking about what had happened uh, politically that had made me so as you say paralyzed or not doing it or not thinking about it. And he started screaming no, 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 no. This is the time when artists go to work. Not when everything is alright. Not when it looks sunny. It's when it's hard. And I thought about all those people who wrote in prisons, in gulags, under duress, got mur- I mean, you know, they were doing it. So I'm sitting here going, uh again, right? <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's,
3: it's so embarrassing. <laughs> and but you know, you need sometimes somebody just shake you and you realize that your thing. So it's just more interesting to me the complicated, sophisticated, creative ways in which people do good things. They're interesting to me. Anybody can chop off somebody's head. <laughs> Where's the imagination in that? You know, you uh. <laughs> nothing. Not doing it. I wasn't doing it when I was reading the comics back in the 1938. It wasn't interesting then either. But this other is. And I don't know why it doesn't absolutely grab people, not in a narcissistic way, but just into as something that one can inquire about as well as execute.
0: Characters who do good in your novels don't wear the top hats, I mean, they, and oftentimes they're a kind of anonymous group of women who are just doing good, um, which usually means taking care of somebody, mm-hmm. as your characters in this one do.
3: Taking care of somebody, correcting them. There's a woman that said in her home, who told you you was trash?
2: Right.
3: And why'd you believe them?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, it's a kind of, you know, hoist up your loins, but not for the sword. You know, taking care, you know, of a friend, a parent, a neighbor, a child, thinking about it and doing it for their benefit. You may make mistakes. I mean, you're not, I am sure, flawless, so you're going to mess up. But the impetus is toward that. It seems to me.
0: Does it help avoid, again, in dark times, um, a sense of cynicism and despair? No. <laughs> <laughs> so that's there.
3: You don't get anything for it. Yeah. You know, I used to tell, tell the students in Princeton, I gave a little speech once they jumped all over me. I said, uh, I want you all graduating students to be happy. You've earned it and I want you to have it, but never settle for happiness. It's not good enough. Mm-hmm. So they go, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> but in that sense, you know, when I say, rise up and go <laughs> and do good. You're, you can't Just, it's not going to work in that
2: right.
3: you know sense. It's, it's you doing it. It's you doing it. It's you, you know, picking up what was broken and putting it back together again. Uh, even if you put it back together and it doesn't want to be put back together, it may want to be crooked. That's hardly the point. The point is to do that thing, and it's not, you're not gonna be happy after you do it. You don't get to get
0: nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask you, while I have the opportunity, about um, the other kinds of writing that you do. I mean, we know you primarily as a novelist, um, love you as a novelist, that's where you've won rightly so, all these accolades, but you, you write in so many forms. You, you've written opera, you write song cycles, lyrics, poems, essays, uh, all those forms. <laughs> 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 What's different about moving outside of the novel for you? What? Well, sometimes
3: it's just fascinating to be in another realm of writing. Um, I was in a situation that I had never really been in before, vis-a-vis writing. I was writing lyrics for Kathleen Battle to be put to music by Andre Previn. So we all got together, and I realized that I knew everything about how to write lyrics. (laughs) And he didn't know anything, (laughs) but I didn't know anything about music, how to compose it. And I certainly couldn't sing. So there were three of us sort of like experts in our own little areas who needed one another. And to be a novice for me in that situation was very exciting. It was such a fantastic learning experience, you know, to work with two other professionals and they with me and so on. So it was so exciting that I, you know, put together a thing called the Prince and Ataye based on bringing, you know, working artists uh, into the uh, program because I felt they wouldn't... um, You know, as faculty members, we didn't do our work with the students. We did it at home, and then we tried to guide their work. This, I wanted working artists to come in and make demands that they normally make uh, on students, not because they care whether they get a pass or fail, or or any money, but because they were professional people. So that's really what's made me stay there for so long after I had decided to retire. And they said, oh, wait a minute. And I thought, what would make me stay here? And I thought of that environment that I had. You had another part to your question.
0: Well, no, I mean, is, is it the collaboration that you like? The, working collaboratively, is that what it is about the other forms? They let you work collaboratively?
3: Well, I think, um, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody else is in the picture uh, when we did Desdemona with Peter, mm-hmm. um, and this woman from Mali was going to sing, Rokia Touré, and uh, she said to me, "Everybody thinks African music is drums," and I thought, "Yeah," <laughs> <laughs> and of course it's not. She educated me enormously, and we did. Um, my version and Peter's version of the woman who doesn't say anything of any consequence, really, in Othello. And uh, he had said to me, he would never, he would never, put Othello on stage. And I said, why not? He says, too thin. I said, you can. It's not. I said, you have, you know, this girl who leaves home and marries a guy. An African guy, a war. In the days when those women were put in convents, she turned everybody down, and then she went to war with him. This is not that little girl you see on stage. Ooh, don't kill me. It's not. It's not her. <laughs> this is somebody. So anyway, that's how we, we, we got started. And again, as I was saying earlier, I wouldn't do. Speaking of the white gays, I wouldn't do it unless he g- let me get rid of Iago. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I said, as long as he's in there, uh, telling everybody what to do and lying and talking and everybody nobody talks to him, and, he, and Othello's never alone on stage by himself. I thought, what is it? Let's get him out. And now the people can talk and say stuff, real stuff. Stop apologizing and scraping and so on. So that was that with those two right. theater things. Yeah. And I did, earlier I had, when I was at SUNY Albany, yeah. I did <laughs> I did a play called Dreaming Emmett. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of the same impulse that I had about Picola. I thought that no black teenager was taken seriously in the theater, ever. And I thought, so I made up this very interesting play. And uh, I did a very foolish thing, or well, maybe it wasn't foolish, who knows. Um, I think while there was playing at the Capitol Theater. Um, Frank Rich called and said he would like to come and see it. And Gilbert Moses was the director Mm -hmm. and he had a big impact on the play. And I said, I don't think so. (laughs) Well, it was a mistake, you think? (laughs) (laughs) Eh, no, tell him to wait. (laughs) And there's no waiting. The play played and it was over. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But that was one area. And the rest of of things that you're talking about, other genre in which I write essays and, you know, sort of speeches and things, um, it's just part of being an academic, you know, when I think I have something extraordinary uh, and interesting (laughs) and all to say. I asked my assistant at Princeton, who works very hard for me there, uh to get me a list of everything I had ever written, you know, not just novels but you know reviews and things, and she did. I cannot believe what was I thinking? <laughs> <laughs> I reviewed all sorts of. I guess they were paying me or something. They, <laughs> just tons and tons of stuff.
0: Anyway. You did two, um, and then we're, we're going to leave some time for questions, but you did two collections of essays that you edited that were kind of interventions into a moment, a kind of public moment. One was um, around the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings. The other one was around what you call O.J. Simpson and the spectacle of race. Um, and I was wondering if there have been since then any kinds of similar moments that you felt you wanted to there offer have, that kind of intervention?
3: There have been, but I don't have the apparatus. Those books, those collections I did with other colleagues who were also interested in writing about the O.J. Simpson trial. right or Uh, Clarence Thomas and whatever that was, Uh, (laughs) you know, high tech lynching, he said. Um, And there were lots of other colleagues, not just at Princeton, but at other universities who contributed. So I wanted a kind of a dialogue among several people uh, on that situation. And I just wrote the introduction or something. The first one.
0: Yeah, they were wonderful. Well, I have some questions from okay. the audience, um, and I'll start with this one. It has two little hearts on it, so, <laughs> and it says, "We love you." We but. are.
2: <laughs> we do love you.
3: <laughs> I know how it goes.
0: <laughs> okay. It says, "We are social workers and teachers." We see yes.) We see childhood trauma daily. Thank you for your literature. How can we help? Please discuss so we can save our communities. It's one of those save, like big questions. Love. I'm not going to be able to Thais, Edith, Jasmine and Gabby. Oh
3: Start <laughs> small.
0: Yeah, small question.
3: No, it's small. I was telling Cornell, I think, uh, earlier today, that a friend of ours who was president of Brown, and uh, very important at Princeton, who had retired and she lives in Houston. And she's paid a lot of dues to the academy. And now she does something else. She rented or bought a little storefront in the Fifth Ward, which is rough. And she brings, with some other people, young children to this place. It's not a school, but it does teach. It's a playground, it's with adults who care for them, and they can walk in off the street anytime. And I thought that's a, I mean, she's not soliciting funds, she's not, you know, she's not in a newspaper, she's just doing that thing. And then I was looking at uh, this man. Was it in Cleveland? That artist? Was he at a TED conference or something? No, it wasn't that. Anyway, black guy Potter, in his thirties or forties. Uh, anyway, the. The gays. What? The Aster Gates. Painted Houses? That's it. <laughs> Smart audience. That's it. I was trying to tell that to somebody, and I, was, I have no memory. And uh, I couldn't think of it. But that, that just struck me as the most interesting, self-propelled thing. And that uh, New York soup. I mean, there are all these things that people can do without headlines and just maybe with a few little people on Twitter or whatever, however people go. And 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 do it. You know, it should not just be some major head of something and it sort of filters down. Listen, let me hear you tell you something. Poor people are the most creative people in the world. Because they have to be. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They have to be. Mm -hmm. They think it up. So. Thank you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In Create Dangerously, Edwidge Danticat writes, all artists, writers among them, have several stories, one might call them creation myths, that haunt and obsess them. Can you comment on the ghosts that haunt your work? Mm -hmm. And that's from Vanessa Marti. Well, Vanessa,
3: <laughs> sometimes there is a haunting. It's usually, it, sometimes there's a sentence that I can't get out of my head, and it doesn't, sounds ridiculous, um, and I don't know where it goes. But if it doesn't go anywhere and it hangs on, I'll write a second sentence. And then something might really happen. Now most of the time it doesn't work that way. It's me thinking, what about the relationship between middle class black man and a revolutionary black man? And then we have Song of Solomon and that journey. What about the pain of desegregation to black businesses, so then we have the hotel in love. What about you know? I mean, it's not the theme; it's just the situation that I want to explore, and to explore the definition of love, the purest form being children loving one another because they don't have the problems. That older people, or even teenagers do when they're very small, you see two and three-year-olds play with each other before they get educated (laughs) into who to hate and who don't. That kind of love is pure. Mm. So I wanted to put that in the middle of this upheaval with successful black resorts. And now nobody has to go, doesn't have to go there anymore.
0: We have time for two more. Um, one of my favorite lines from your books is, Eve is the mother of Mary. <laughs> we were just talking about this line. Mary is the daughter of Eve from Paradise. What was a relationship? Um, that was a revelation to me. Can you talk about your relationship with the Bible? More importantly, can you talk about your relationship with the women in the Bible since reading that line I can't help but think how we remember women and how that starts with the Bible. I don't know. Are there any
3: women authors of books of the Bible? Who? By her? (laughs) About her? Okay. (laughs)
0: Well, In the apocrypha.
3: In the apocrypha. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I need. I need to talk to you all. You <laughs> have to have a good conversation. Um, I'm a Catholic. We don't read the Bible. They just tell us. <laughs> It's called a missile. And it's like this, 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 and this.
0: That's it. Over. (laughs) I think this is a good one to end the questions on. How do you take care of yourself when you are writing heart-wrenching scenes? Do you go for a walk, take a break, call a friend? What advice do you have for writers who are diving into the trauma of racism in stories and are triggered?
3: That's a difficult question because it varies so differently. I don't take walks and things because um, it's a big waste of time. (laughs) I live um, on the Hudson River, I mean on it. It's like the water is about, I don't know, maybe 50 feet and I have a little pier. My desk looks this way, because I don't want to look at the water. It keeps, you know, it's distracting, it's beautiful, it varies, it's either still or it's frozen or it's wavy or, you know, all sorts of interesting things. But it's, I can't, I have to concentrate. I, I really do. Uh, somebody asked me, I think it was today, when I was at Charlie Rose, what makes me happy? Oh no, there's another woman who was doing a little video. She said, what makes you happy? And I thought, and I said, weather. <laughs> and I could go on and on, but it was a small thing, just weather. You know, when it's nice, or it's beautiful, or it's not beautiful. So, so you can see that if I were, as the questioner puts it, going on a long walk, I would never write anything walking around, looking at the weather and being happy.
0: <laughs> I think implicit in that question and, and a way to close out the evening is that as readers, we care about you and we want to know that you are taking care of yourself because we are grateful. <laughs> and it's, it's a way of saying thank you so much for all that you've given to us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations on 92yondemand.org.